The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Alleluia. We do say to you, Father, praise because of what you have done, what we celebrate today. We give you thanks. And as we open up your scriptures now, Father, would you speak to us through your word, by the power of your spirit, to lift up Christ and change us, each one of us, from wherever we are, would you grow us? It's my hope and my prayer. Lord, we need you to come and to move here in our midst because we have no power. There is no power in my word alone. There is not even any power in our own hearts to grab ourselves and make ourselves change. You must open the eyes of our hearts. You must move our spirits. You must grow and change and convict, forgive, sanctify. Father, we declare that to your praise and we, we pray for our good, for Christ's glory, for the spread of his kingdom, for the, the worship of his name. We pray for those things this morning and ask you to give power to your word for the glory of Christ and for the good of his church. Amen. Easter has a difficult time competing with Christmas in our culture. Because Christmas is kind of the, the warm, fuzzy center of this, of this holiday season. And we have the, the family gathering back together and coming home. And everybody's sitting around an open fire roasting chestnuts and singing carols. We have eggnog and you have all the decorations of the, the lights and the wreaths and the tree. And of course there's the little precious baby born away in a manger on a silent night. And we spend a ton of money to buy stuff to make ourselves happy. At Easter, all you get is some candy delivered by a pastel bunny rabbit in a nest of artificial grass. And you don't even get a day off school because it always falls on Sunday. It's impossible for Easter to live up to Christmas. It just doesn't deliver that much to us to be excited about. Unless you turn your attention to what Easter, what Good Friday and Easter Sunday are actually about. And if you do that, then Easter surpasses Christmas in the same way that for parents, the actual birth of a baby surpasses the conception of it. You need the former to get the latter. You need that conception to get the birth, but it's all about the birth. You need Christmas to get Easter, but the real reason for the season of Christmas is the cross. That's why Easter is awesome. Because of what it delivers, or, or, or rather what it might deliver to every single one of us sitting here today. 
In the words of the Bible, it might deliver to you the ancient promised blessing of Abraham. Or in our language today, it might deliver to you hope and life and purpose and meaning and security, satisfaction of soul, love, contentment. It might deliver that to you. That's what is made possible here on this weekend. The door opened up that the blessing promised to Abraham might come home to roost in your life, now and forever. That's what we're going to look at today in a passage from the book of Galatians. Galatians is a book, really it's a letter, written to a bunch of churches scattered throughout the ancient geographic region of Galatia, basically what is uh, modern northern Turkey. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to a bunch of different churches there, all filled with really young Christians, because after he left them, some other folks came in and began to kind of confuse people and teach some false things, and they were wondering what actually is the deal, specifically on the issue of how is one actually brought back to God? Paul, can you clarify that for us? There was some confusion creeping in. So he writes this letter to address that issue, to clarify the issue. Here is how a person comes back into relationship with God. This is the only way it happens. It's not by your own works. It's by faith in another one's works. That's what he's addressing throughout the letter. In our passage today, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, is right on that subject. So that's the passage that we're going to turn to, and I'm going to read the passage, make a couple of comments about it, and then we'll look at the argument as Paul develops it. I'm actually going to begin in verse 9 to give the lead-in to the section, to the whole paragraph. So this is actually starting in verse 9, Galatians 3. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. One of the things you notice as you look through this passage is that it's five verses, 10 to 14, and the first four of them all end in a quotation from the Old Testament. Paul's working through an argument here, and at every verse he stops and says, as the Old Testament told us. He says, this according to the Old Testament, and this according to the Old Testament, this according to the Old Testament, this according to the Old Testament, so that, so that. Two conclusions in verse 14. This is a very definite structure here. Nonetheless, the structure does make it a little difficult to follow the argument because as it is in regular conversation, if you're talking to someone and and at every phrase they pause to reference something else, 
makes it a little hard to follow the conversation. But there is a main point. He is driving one main issue here, and let me put it in a sentence. Let me draw together his various statements and, and make this st- summary statement. Here's his point. Christ became accursed so that those who trust him can be blessed. Christ became accursed. He himself became a cursed one, not permanently. That's what the resurrection on Easter shows us. But he became a cursed one so that those who trust in him themselves will not be cursed, but can instead be blessed. That's Paul's main argument here, proven repeatedly from the Old Testament. That's what we're going to unpack here. Here's how I'm going to proceed. I'm going to look at the, at the two stages of his argument and then at the end make a third point, tying it into Easter Sunday specifically. So basically I have three points, two stages to his argument and then a, a tie into Easter. We'll begin with the first stage of Paul's argument. This is Easter, a, a day of celebration, but what we have to celebrate is only joyous, it's only good because of the, it is God's solution to a tremendous problem. And that's where we start. That's the first stage of the argument, the problem. Here's the first point. The curse of the law rests on all those who rely on its works. The curse of the law rests upon all who attempt to live by and follow the works of the law to be made right with God. There is a law that has come from God. His requirements, his stipulations, his commandments, and they govern everybody who lives in his world. It's his world. He's in charge of it. And we have to follow his rules, his commandments, his laws. Similarly, if if you go south of the border to Mexico, you leave Texas and you go into Mexico, you cannot follow Texas law in Mexico. It's not Texas anymore. If you fly across the ocean to, to France or to pick a country, any country, you have to follow the laws of that country. You can't say, well, I'm an American, I'm going to follow American laws. No, you live by the, lo- the rules of the place where you are. We are in this world. This is God's realm. He's in charge. And he has given to people, all of us, a law, and it flows directly out of who he is, his nature. He says, be truth-tellers always, 100% of the time, because I myself, says God, I myself am truth. Be loving to people 100% all the time because I myself am love. All of his rules and stipulations and commandments flow out of his character, and he's given given them to us and said, this is how you are to live in my world, under my reign. And along with them, When he gave them in written form, he also spelled out a set of blessings and curses. We've seen this before a little bit in the book of Deuteronomy. We talked about this briefly. He spells out blessings and curses. Here's how it works. Here's my law. If you keep it, I will bless you in this way, in that way, in the other. The promised blessing that I was going to give to Abraham, I'm going to give it to you. And if you don't keep my law, 
I will curse you as a lawbreaker. I will pour out my wrath on all who transgress my law, all who say, I'm not going to follow you. I'm in your world. I want nothing to do with your rules. Well, as the judge of that rule and of that world, I must judge that. Blessings and curses spelled out in the very same document that gives us the law. So there are blessings there. I want to be really clear that there are blessings there. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. It's described here in the bookends of our passage, 9 and 14, as the blessing of Abraham, as I said, life and hope. It's a marvelous thing. It is a stunning blessing that he offered to Abraham in the Old Testament. He said, Abraham, come to me and I will be your God. You and your people after you will be my people. And I will put you in a place. I'll put you in a land. And I will drape over you a robe of protection and provision. And in that shelter, you'll never be afraid again. You'll never be threatened. You'll never be abandoned or abused. You will be provided for to the utmost. I will, I will be right in your midst. It's a marvelous blessing. In the Old Testament, it's, it's put in very physical terms, but what it's really pointing to is something spiritual, far deeper than the physical. He's pointing to the heart. I will be in your midst, meaning I will stand right next to you and I will fill you on the inside and give you life. Yeah, in some of these physical things here, but more importantly, in here, forever and ever, the blessing promised to Abraham, the blessing that every single one of us wants. We're made for that. Your heart cries out for it. You want to live in a world that is covered in love, full of joy, where you commune regularly with beauty and meaning and, and fullness. It's the blessing we all want. But there's a problem. It's a great problem in verse 10. Because it says, all who rely on the works of the law, that is, rely on them to get that blessing, end up cursed. Yes, there's blessing in this passage, but the word curse is mentioned five times. all over this text. And it's something that we never think about. Now, of course, we do think about it a little bit. The world's full of cursing. And we joke sometimes that an unlucky person is cursed. But what we never think about is God cursing a person. Particularly you yourself. We never think about that. But God repeatedly tells us that that is in fact reality. Paul points it out. He quotes Deuteronomy 27. He's saying God has forever ago told us this. Cursed is everyone who does not, and look at the scope of this sentence here, everyone who does not do all things and abide in them and continually do them. He's saying, here's my, here's my stipulation, here's my requirement, and there's the blessing on the one side and the cursing on the other side. And to get out of the blessing side, you must do everything always. 
And if you don't, you're cursed. That is an extremely high bar. Cursed is everyone who does not always do everything. Cursed, not meaning you're unlucky, but meaning that you stand under the wrath of God with his punishment bearing down on you. Cursed is everyone who does not abide in, constantly live in everything that God has required. Whether you realize it or not, every single one of us faces up against God's law and falls on this side, the side of the curse, because we do not always in everything continually abide in what he has commanded. So his verdict upon each person is guilty, cursed. means that right now, human beings live as enemies of the omnipotent one who knows everything and is perfectly just and has promised that he will pour out his curse and his wrath on all evil. Now right there, Every single one of us makes a decision about how to respond to that. And generally, there are about three different ways that people respond to it. Some listen to this, hear what God requires of them in the law. Perfect, absolutely perfect, constant moral purity and holiness. And they hear his pronouncement of curse on them if they fail to live up to that, and they get a little bit angry about it. A little ticked off, a little kind of irate. Who's God to tell me that? Or who's that guy to tell me that? Maybe it begins to seem a little unappealing. Well, if he's going to be like that, who wants to be with him anyway? And a little bit of anger kind of builds there, and, and mentally you kind of begin to walk away, rejecting that. If that's what's rising up in you, let me just ask you to hold on a second. To just wait and keep listening. Because absolutely, this is the bad news. This, there's, there's no two ways about it. There's, there's, this is bad. This is the bad news, but it could be the beginning of good news if you would have it. If you would stop and listen all the way through, there is a good news bit of this to come. But what happens is that people get irate, get upset by, by God telling them who they really are and they walk away and they miss the good news and the bad news remains. You know how it is. If, if the radio's on and you plug your ears, the radio's still on. It doesn't go off. Walking away does not change anything other than that it separates you from the good news that's coming. So stay here. I ask you, wait, keep listening. The second response that that some have when we hear about this, God requires this, and he says that if I don't perfectly at all the time keep it, then he'll curse me. The second response is some people say, well, I'm going to try harder than to get it done. I think I probably can. I mean, I... 
I think I can. I, I'm going to try a little bit harder. It's right there in English. Here's what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to love people. I, I can be loving. I can be better at that. I can do a little more. And they strive a little more, a little harder in an attempt to become worthy, to come into God's presence. But you missed it that it says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is declared not guilty. Cursed is everyone who does not continually always do everything, even if it were possible for you from today on to perfectly keep God's law. You didn't yesterday. And so the curse still sits on you. That's no solution either. But the third option, the person who hears, this is what God requires, and he pronounces a curse on me if I don't keep it. I'm not going to run away, and I'm not going to strive harder to keep it. I'm going to say, help. God, help. I see something in here of your character of mercy and love, and I don't quite get how it all works, but help. That response will find hope in the second step of the argument. Paul moves to the second stage of his argument after making clear that the curse of the law rests on everyone who does not perfectly keep the law. There's a problem there, but God has provided a solution. The second stage, in Christ, the curse is removed and the blessing bestowed. In Christ alone, the curse is removed and the blessing bestowed. Verses 11 and 12 are beginning to transition us towards the solution. And it does that by by bringing up a couple of words, justified and and righteous. You can see them there in the text. And when it brings up those words, we're moving into a legal realm. Those words are a legal terminology of the day. And essentially, they're having to deal with a verdict. You can see there in verse 11, no one can be justified before God. You can see the courtroom there of a person pronounced not guilty before a judge. That's what it means to be justified before God, pronounced not guilty. That can't happen by the law. The law says do this and that always, and if you don't, the judge will pronounce you guilty. Law and the verdict of not guilty, they don't go together. They never have. That's the quote from Habakkuk 2, the righteous will live by faith. Righteous, that is, the the one who is justified, not guilty. That one is joined to faith. The law is not joined to righteousness. So we stand guilty and under this curse, needing to be found not guilty. How can that happen? Verse 13. And there is such glory in verse 13. Because it doesn't come home to you, or me, or any of us. It doesn't come home to, and here's how you can be justified. No. It comes home to what God has done. Christ redeemed us, bought us out from, under the curse of the law. He did it by becoming 
cursed in our place. By taking upon himself the curse that is due to each one of us because of our sin. That's what's going on at the cross. That's why Good Friday is good. Because he hangs there and takes on himself the curse that should, by all rights, fall on me. In the Old Testament, this is a marvelous thing. A thousand years before, the book of Deuteronomy again, God had said, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He did not say, cursed is everyone who bleeds. It's not just only in shedding of some blood, like if he slid his wrist and and he bled. He does not get cursed for that. It does not say, cursed is anyone who dies. As if he were to die in a cart accident or of old age or thrown off a cliff, beaten by a mob, that then he would be cursed. No. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse of God rests on a person hanged on a tree. He said that in the book of Deuteronomy thousands of years before, 1,500 years before Jesus. And then he comes along and is hung on a tree made a curse in the place of people who stand under the curse. There is an offer of a tremendous exchange there. If you know the the novel, The Tale of Two Cities, set in revolutionary France, and you know that the story revolves around two guys who bear an uncanny resemblance to each other. One of them found guilty before the law and headed off to the guillotine. And the other guy's innocent. He's justified before the law, if you will. And the whole story revolves around how they switch places. And the one who is innocent goes to the blade. And the one who isn't, the one who has been found guilty before the law, goes free. There's a great exchange there. For the condemned man to be free, someone else has to step into his place. And it can't be anybody else who's already in the cart. It's got to be somebody else who's not there, who's otherwise free. It's that kind of exchange that Jesus offers to people. That he redeems us out from under the curse, stepping into our place under the curse to bear it on the cross. But it's not exactly like the tale of two cities because this isn't some sort of a trick. God did all of this on purpose. He became a curse. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about how he made him sin in our place. The power of God has determined to trade accounts. And it actually is valid before the judge's eyes. There's no deception here where somebody pulls one over God's eyes here. No, he switches places on purpose. A great exchange that you might walk free. You might be redeemed, removed from out from under that curse. So that, this is verse 14, the conclusion of the whole argument here, so that 
the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles in Christ so that the promised spirit might come by faith. The words so that are pointing out purpose. Not accidental result, purpose. God is doing something intentional here. He intends to give the blessing. He wants to give the blessing. And He wants to do it to all sorts of people in Christ. He wants to give the blessing of Abraham. Abraham's a Jew. He wants to give that blessing to Gentiles. Meaning all sorts of people across the whole planet. Now, we today, we're not really caught up in the the Jew-Gentile divide here, but what we should be thinking about is the Jewish people are a small group, kind of a little colony. And most of the world is Gentile. And what God is saying is that I am far more interested than just a little bitty group of people. I want everybody. Across all the, the racial and ethnic and cultural divides, I want everybody. Of all tongues and tribes and nations, not just people who have cleaned up their act and have attempted to follow me already, everybody. All sorts of people. He spreads his net wide to include even you. And he does it in Christ, lifting up Jesus. This is the one to be trusted in, Christ, who hangs on a cross to take the curse in your place so that you might not be cursed. How does it come about? By faith. The end of verse 14. Those who are blessed are those of faith, verse 9. The righteous live by faith, verse 11. Not by works of the law, but by faith. It has to be that way. To trust him to bear the curse. He can't bear part of it and you bear the rest. One or the other. To bear the curse on the cross or to bear the curse in your own life forever under God's wrath. That's the conclusion to his argument. And the final point is what ties all that into Easter. Because at that point, if you stop right there, what you have is a claim, an assertion. And we all know that if we walked out onto the street, perhaps even pulled us in here, if we walked out onto the street, we would ask people, uh, what's in the spiritual realm? What's true? How does one get right with God? How do you become a good person? We get a hundred answers. And lots of people would disagree with with what that paragraph just says. So all we have so far is a claim. But here's what ties it into Easter, the third point. The empty tomb proves that this is true. It's the third point. The empty tomb, Easter, proves that what this paragraph says about the cross is true. Before Easter, you put yourself on on Saturday, if you will, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. On Saturday... You have two possible interpretations of the cross. 
Everybody agrees, as the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who was hung on the tree. And one possible interpretation is, absolutely, God has cursed him because he's a blasphemer and a liar. He claimed to be God in the flesh, the one who can forgive sin. There isn't any higher blasphemy than that, and God got him for it. Absolutely, he cursed him. And right now he rots in hell under God's wrath for it. And the other possible interpretation is, absolutely God cursed him in my place as a testimony of his love and grace, which is true. Easter Sunday proves the latter. No one has authority over death but God. And if God curses a person and puts him to death, he stays dead. He doesn't overcome God's power and rise again. But the testimony is that God did raise him again and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what the empty tomb proves. And at this point, Christianity goes to a different place than every other religion under the sun. It goes to history and fact. Every other religion under the sun argues for a viewpoint based on my impression and somebody else's teachings and their feelings and thoughts. A, a, a strong urging from the inside says this and that and the other, and Christianity says, that's nice. The tomb is empty. Where's the body? Ask the hundreds of people who saw the dead man walking again for 40 more days. There's something that is, that is concrete and hard about Christianity. We move out of the realm of impression and feeling and thought and into the realm of fact and say, let's talk about fact. And the problem for us is that it's 2,000 years ago. And, and it seems like a myth way back there in history somewhere. But when all this stuff was written, it was fact. You read the Bible and they say, go talk to people. Paul on trial for his life in Jerusalem says, walk down the street and check the tomb. Here's the guy's name and address that experiences with me. Go ask him. Fact. How do people respond to that? They don't bother with the facts. They don't want to know the truth. I plead with you, don't fall into that category. There is fact here. The tomb is empty. Jesus is, therefore, who he said he was. He has done, therefore, what he said he did. He has stood in the place of people like you and me to absorb the curse of God himself, that you might be bought out from under it if you'll trust him. And when you're bought out from under the curse, the blessing of God will fall on you. There is fact here. And therefore, the empty tomb is a compelling and urgent call to every person in every country at every stage of life, believe. Take this out of the realm of theory Grab it, bring it down, and believe it. If you will trust him, 
He will redeem you. And if you do not, he will not. Believe. Have the curse removed and the blessing bestowed on you. Believe today, right now. It's not hard. It's impossible, but it's not hard. There's not three steps that you do. God opens your eyes and you see it. And if you see it right now, believe. In this moment, trust Christ to pay for your sin on the cross. If you want to talk more about that, I would be happy to. Stop me at the door when you go out. But you don't need to talk to me. You can just believe right now. And I know a lot of us here, I know a lot of us here have believed already. But the same message is the message preached to you by the empty tomb. Believe. Let me put it this way to you. If you're a Christian, if you trusted Christ, since you are in Christ, God's curse has been removed from you and placed on him. So what does it mean about how God looks at you right now? With whatever you did last night, with whatever you did yesterday or or Tuesday morning, if the curse has been removed and put on Christ, how does God look at you right now? Through eyes of blessing. That's not complicated, but I think that we habitually misunderstand that. At least I do, because I find myself constantly looping back into a pattern of thinking that says, God will be pleased with me if I live this way. What, you know, here's what I, I know. In order to enjoy the blessing of God, I have to perform these things. You find yourself kind of falling back into that? It's not true. The curse is removed from you. He looks on you in blessing. You stand in grace, forgiven. Now, are you to keep his commandments? Absolutely, the Bible's full of it. And he has given you his spirit. Last phrase of verse 14, the promised Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, he said, I will put my spirit in them and move them to follow my decrees. How do you get moved to follow the decrees? God moves you through his spirit at work in you. Absolutely, we have to be a people about holiness and obedience by God's power, His Spirit at work in us. Absolutely, He works on us to shape us and discipline us, but never, never from wrath. Always, always in love. The curse has been removed from you. And when you're in Christian relationships with other people, a spouse or kids or parents or people in the church, if they're in Christ, the curse has been removed from them. You dare not then look on them in cursing and judgment. Now, do we have standards? Are we quite absolutely sure. 
but we look at those standards through eyes of love and grace, not judgment and curse. That whole thing has been been ripped out of the Christian's life and the Christian community. Curse does not sit here with us anymore. Performance-based acceptance is foreign to us now. At Easter, we have been raised to a new type of life, personal and corporate life. Do you know what it's like to walk through life oblivious to hardships around you, not burdened by them or, or weighed down by them? If you're married, maybe you can kind of connect back to when you were uh, on your honeymoon or when you were newly engaged or maybe began to date that person and all things were good. I met my wife in college and so to put it in my terms, it would be something like, I don't have any money, I have several tough exams this week, I'm really tired and I currently have to go to work at my greasy fast food joint job. But she loves me. Who cares? You know what that's like? I mean, have you experienced that? A number of us have, maybe not everybody. What, that, what I'm trying to get at with that is that there's something about this relationship, but she loves me, but he loves me. There's something about that that casts all of this in a whole different light. It makes it bearable. This idea of, of affection from this other human being changes how I look at life. There's something there in that illustration, but it's kind of incomplete. It's not entirely accurate because we all know that that fiancé or that husband or whoever that other human being is can't really do a whole lot about all these circumstances. And we all know that the she loves me is going to wear off. We're going to come back to reality, and if you don't handle some of these circumstances, this love of your life is going to be angry with you. (laughs) Right? For some of us, this love of our life is going to say, I don't love you anymore, I'm going to leave. Right? So that, that analogy doesn't quite work. Because what we find in the gospel is that there is one who has said to his people who trust him, I love you. I deal with you only in grace and I am not leaving. And I am not going to be fickle like human beings are and be irritated with you when you sin. I am not. I will help you deal with some of these circumstances. I will help you bear up through some of these circumstances. But I will never leave you nor forsake you. I live in you, and I cannot be faithless to myself. Putting the gospel into your mind, Christian, putting into your mind what we're talking about here on Easter, that he has been raised, and therefore the gospel is true, and his curse has been removed from you, and his blessing sits on you. Putting that into your mind will change how the circumstances of life look, and will change how you deal with the circumstances of life. And above all, I think it should cause you to marvel at Christ. Christ redeemed you 
from the curse of the law. Christ became a curse for you. It's repeated so often, but it really is true. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. What is that? Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is the joy set before him? Eternity in the Father's presence with his people, you. Not for a merit badge, look what I've done, but for a people to experience the eternal communion with God and with his people. He had you in mind when he went to the cross. And he rose from the grave victorious, saying, I have won them to myself for my Father's glory. He was cursed so that you might be blessed in him. If you trust him, believe him today. Let me pray. Father, we need from you power to believe. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prayed that you would give power to Christians to believe, to know how wide and long and high and deep is your love for them. We need power to believe. You also prayed in Ephesians 1 that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would see spiritual truth. We need that, all of us, every single one of us. So I pray, give power and open our eyes that we can see all that you have done in the cross, removing the curse from us, and that you will move us to trust you. For the first time, for those here who who haven't trusted you yet, move them for the first time. And for those who have, Lord, awaken them and move them to trust you more. May the result be that we bask in your glorious grace and experience your blessing and that Christ be honored. And I pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.